Welcome to the Middle East 101 series. My name is Alessandro Duino, and I am Principal Research Fellow here at the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. Today, I'm very excited to have with us my colleague, Dr. Aisha Al-Sarihi. She is an expert in clean energy policy and climate economic policy and governance. And her focus is on the Arab region. Aisha, if I recall correct, holds a PhD from Imperial College London, and she specialized in environmental science, having obtained a master's degree and a bachelor's degree with distinction at the Sultan Qaboos University in Oman. Previous to her posting here at MEI and US, she's been working as a researcher and as a visiting scholar in a very important academic institution ranging from London School of Economics, Georgetown University, uh, the Center for Contemporary Arab Study at the Georgetown University, as I mentioned, and uh, recently at King Abdullah Petroleum Study and Research Center from 2019 to 2021. Also, she is a visiting researcher at the Arab Gulf State Institute in Washington. Today, Aisha is going to tackle a very compelling argument, what to expect from the United Nations next conference on climate change, COP27. But now, please allow me, without further ado, to give the floor to Aisha. Please. Thank you very much, Alex, for the kind introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with all of you today. Thanks uh, to everyone who is joining here in the room or online. Um, so uh, before I start, um, as uh, Alex mentioned, today I'm going to speak about what to expect from Egypt host of upcoming UN climate conference, the COP27. And I must say that uh, before going uh, into the slides, uh, this is a very broad question. And it can be tackled from a different angle and from different uh, perspectives. However, uh, as Alex mentioned, my expertise is focused on the Arab region and in the Middle East. And in today's talk, I will focus mainly uh, and we will look at it from the perspective uh, of the Middle East. Uh, the outline of my presentation today, uh, I'm going to tackle uh, five points. Uh, first of all, uh, I'll give a, a brief background about the UN uh, uh, COP conferences, uh, and then uh, we will give a background about the, uh, the, the MENA region, how the MENA region is impacted by climate change, and uh, secondly, what is the uh, current state of climate action in the MENA region. Uh, what is the current state of the policy and the governance in the MENA region. And third, I will go back to the main question, what to expect from COP27. And finally, uh, since we are speaking from Singapore, uh, I pose this question, why should MENA climate dynamics matter for Singapore? So uh, I wanted to start my presentation by this picture. Uh, if you are not familiar what this is, uh, this is the uh, moment when the Paris Climate Agreement has been adopted uh, back in 2015 in Paris at COP21. Uh, it is the moment when the second climate treaty has been adopted uh, since the establishment of the United Nations uh, framework for the Climate Change Convention. Uh, now it has been, um, since 2015, it has been seven years 
uh, since the adoption uh, of the Paris Agreement. Uh, and, and, and today is actually, it, it marks 30 years since the, ado uh, since the adoption of the UNFCCC itself. Um, so I wanted to say um, that um, since I focus on the Arab region, uh, the Arab region has already hosted uh, three COPs uh, before, uh, two COPs uh, in, in Morocco, uh, COP7 in 2001, uh, COP22 uh, in 2016, uh, and Qatar ho hosted also one COP, COP18 in 2012. Uh, as I mentioned, it has been seven years uh, since the adoption of the Paris Agreement. And during those uh, seven years, the negotiations has focused on how the countries uh, could, uh, you know, um, uh, operationalize the objectives of the Paris Agreement. Uh, the, now the COP uh, in Egypt and the COP also in the UAE, they are critical, uh, they are gonna be critical me uh, meetings uh, because uh, now the countries will not focus on negotiating how to achieve the objectives, but uh, now they, they are in uh, a point where they need to look at how they implement what has been negotiated before. So now it is a critical moment. It's not about discussing, it's about the implementation. And the UAE next year, uh, in the UAE, the first global stock take uh, will take place. Global stock take is uh, a mechanism that is used to assist the progress of the countries in achieving uh, the ambitions or their climate ambitions, either in terms of mitigation or adaptation. And we will delve more on um, the current state of, uh, you know, um, climate action in the Middle East itself. Uh, we will look at the gap between the ambition and the implementation, where the Middle East is standing today. Right. So here, um, for, this is the map uh, for the MENA region. I'm not going to explain what MENA region is, but this is to give you an idea uh, where Egypt is and where the UAE is. So if we look at Egypt, Egypt is in Africa, in North Africa. Uh, and when a country hosts a COP, uh, it, it gives that country an opportunity uh, to uh, voice out their climate concerns and interests. And they don't do it for the country itself, but they do it also at the regional level. So a question that comes uh, in mind is that uh, so this year COP has been dubbed as Africa COP. Uh, so Egypt is in a position to also represent the African climate uh, interests. And these mainly, mainly include uh, the water security, the food uh, security, um, that, that all uh, go under the adaptation, the loss and damage, uh, as well as, and importantly, the finance of the climate change. However, uh, Egypt itself is also part of the Arab region. So in the UN negotiations, countries, they don't go individually, but they go into groups. And then there, there is an Arab group and Egypt is part of that. 
So Egypt also is in a position also to represent the interests of the Arab countries, including the Arab Gulf states. And as I will show in the next slide, uh, there are differences uh, in the, the, the economic wealth among the Arab countries. So, uh, so with that, the, the interests will be also different whether the countries want to focus on reducing greenhouse gas emissions and tackle the issue from its roots, or they want to focus on you know, um, uh, solving the problem. So I would leave, it, uh, uh, leave that as a question here, and we will move on, and hopefully we can answer those uh, points uh, as we move on. Um, here, I just wanted to give a, a brief background about the uh, Middle East context in terms of the population. Uh, the population has almost increased five times uh, uh, since 1960, and it's, it will continue to increase, as we see from the figure on the right. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the Middle East countries, uh, are including countries, some of the poorest and as well as some of the wealthiest countries. And when it comes to climate change, this is really important to consider because uh, the, the, the wealthiest countries could have the cushion uh, actually um, uh, to adapt uh, and also to progress in climate change. But the poorest countries, uh, they might not have that capacity in terms of the finance, in terms of the human capacity to address the climate change. And here comes the question uh, uh, of cooperation or co competition between the countries when it comes to addressing the issues of the climate change. Um, uh, here I wanted to um, highlight uh, on the uh, Arab Gulf state countries uh, because the Arab Gulf states, uh, in terms of their economy, uh, they, they, the economy is mainly dependent on hydrocarbon uh, resources. Um, uh, almost uh, one third of the oil reserves is uh, in the Gulf Arab states and uh, almost uh, a quarter of the global natural gas reserves is in the region. And the region, these countries, six countries, depend heavily on the revenues that comes from the oil and gas. And I wanted to mention this because uh, I think uh, although the Gulf Arab states uh, would face similar challenge to the other parts uh, in the, 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 with the rest uh, Middle East region in terms you know, of water scarcity, food security, uh, the, the rise in the temperature and the extreme weather events. Uh, however, also this group of country, I, I will show later on, are also going to be affected differently by the climate change and how the climate negotiations are advanced and how the climate, global climate policy advanced. So now moving to the second point uh, in today's presentation, uh, the impacts of the climate change in the MENA region. Uh, I'm going to speak uh, about it from two angles, the physical impact and the, uh, the socioeconomic impact. In terms of impact, uh, there is now uh, enough scientific evidence that shows that the, the Middle East region is one of the most uh, vulnerable regions uh, to the climate change. 
and that manifests through you know, the rise in the temperature, uh, the changing patterns of the rainfall in the region which has an arid climate uh, conditions and water resources in there are already scarce. Uh, the, uh, the sea level rise and the exposure to extreme weather events. Um, I, I think um, visualization also and maps helps uh, to uh, helps to convey the message. So there are some climate models uh, that shows that the, uh, the, the, the Middle East region is uh, uh, warming twice faster uh, than the rest of the world. And here uh, we are looking at two different scenarios. The scenario in the top is the, moder uh, the moderate uh, scenario, and the one in the bottom is the worst case scenario. Moderate scenario is the, the assumption behind it is that the global community will take action on climate and that they will adva advance their uh, climate policies. Even with that, uh, as, the, as the color you know, becomes brown and red, it means it's getting hotter and hotter. So even with the moderate scenario, the region is going to warm. But in a worst case scenario, where the climate policy is not going to advance as expected, you can see uh, by the end of the century, uh, the color over the region is uh, turning to red. And that should be alarming for uh, policymakers and uh, the stakeholders in the region and also globally. Uh, also in terms of the uh, rainfall, patterns, um, it's also a climate model suggests that rainfall patterns will um, be variable over time. And as we look at the both uh, scenarios, uh, the color, as the color uh, um, you know, gets lighter, it means lo lower rainfall. So in general, uh, the, uh, the region will experience lower rainfall in the next uh, few years. And this is also uh, very, um, very challenging for the Middle East because the Middle East, uh, based on the World Resource Institute uh, in this map, suggests that it is one of the most water-stressed region in the world. It boasts only 1% of uh, world's total uh, uh, renewable freshwater resources. And this, is, this map, uh, the scale in it, uh, is, it is very um, good visual of how uh, water, uh, about the water scarcity globally. So again, here if we look at the scale, the, the, the darker the color, the more uh, water stressed the region is. Um, and for the gray, the gray uh, basically means it's already water scarce reg uh, region. So for the Middle East, it, you can see it's, uh, it's mostly either gray or red. Uh, again, on the same issue, um, here uh, before like, I give more details, I just wanted to say um, although the region is one of the most water-stressed regions in the world, 90% uh, of the people has access to fresh water in there. Uh, however, uh, if we look at the, um, the global 
average when it comes to uh, the, the water resource scarcity annual threshold, uh, the world average is almost 6,000. For the Arab region, it is the, the average is 1,000. And it is even worse than that. It is actually below the absolute water uh, scarcity threshold uh, of uh, 500 cubic meter per capita uh, per year. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the region is experiencing uh, a growth in the population. It is also experiences a growth of a general growth in industrial and urbanization. And with that, uh, the demand for water will also be rising over time. Uh, now, most of the water needs are met either through groundwater or uh, through uh, um, surface fresh water. But also the water desalination, where you take the water from the sea and then you des desalinate it into fresh water, is also the, 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 the demand for that is also increasing. And so also the supply in the region is increasing. And this figure that we look at shows that desalination capacity uh, in the Middle East is around 50% of global capacity. And the International Energy Agency suggests uh, that the water desalination in the region will increase 14 folds uh, by 2040. Um, and so with the climate change, climate change and the, with the variable in the rainfall, that could bring more and more challenges for, for the region. Especially that the desalination is uh, uh, an energy intensive uh, industry. And you know, all countries uh, who ratified the Paris Agreement, they are under pressure to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and also to reduce the uh, environment uh, foot, uh, footprint. So the countries are also uh, are under pressure to expand their desalination and this, at the same time also reduce the greenhouse gas emissions that comes out of it and other envi environmental consequences. Uh, uh, also, um, uh, the Middle East region uh, is exposed to extreme weather events, um, uh, including uh, the, the cyclones, flash floods, uh, the uh, sandstorms. And uh, I've tried here to collect pictures from recent years. And actually, uh, there are studies that shows that the intensity and frequency of extreme weather events uh, have been increasing over the last few years. And I'm, I'm bringing examples from the last 10 years, uh, from 2007, uh, the cyclone Gono, uh, in Oman, uh, which hit Oman and it caused death there. Uh, most recently, the country also was hit by, by another cyclone last year um, in October. Um, and the sandstorm, the sandstorm, it has been there already in the region, but the frequency and the intensity of it has been increasing over the last few years. 
Uh, now uh, we are moving to also discuss the economic impacts because I think it's important uh, for us not only uh, talk about the physical impacts, it's important to talk about the economic impacts because that gives signals uh, to um, the, the stakeholders and the policy makers in there uh, to work on um, reducing the economic impacts that are associated with the climate change. And there is a growing number of studies uh, that look at how um, the GDP of a country will be affected uh, by the, um, by the um, you know, uh, if we don't tackle climate change. And again here, I'm bringing the same uh, scenarios, uh, climate model scenarios, the worst and the moderate scenario. So again, uh, the, the one on the, on the left um, is showing um, the worst case scenario shows uh, with the, the color is getting really dark. So there's a, a massive decline in the GDP. And um, the moderate scenario is a little bit promising in comparison because the color is not as dark as, uh, in the, as the figure on the left. Um, but uh, yeah, one study is showing that if the Middle East warm uh, by three degrees Celsius, uh, it could cause uh, a GDP loss of around uh, 0.2 to 0.5 uh, in a yearly basis uh, by uh, 2027, or it could be uh, a 3% decline, decline of the GDP by the mid of the century. And if you are interested, I put uh, a source of the study below. Uh, here, I'm, um, here I'm looking at the, the GCC. I mentioned that the GCC um, uh, is a special case within the Middle East in the way it is going to be impacted by the climate change. Um, I mentioned the, the rise in the temperature, uh, the floods, the sandstorms, uh, the impact on the food security and so on. Uh, but also, given the dependence of the region on the hydrocarbon resources, the, this presents a challenge for the economies uh, of those countries. And that comes from the uh, global uh, interest uh, to tackle climate change. And that happens through reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And since fossil fuels uh, account for nearly 80%, the, the burning of it account uh, nearly for 80% of those greenhouse gas emissions. Most of the uh, reduction of the greenhouse gas emissions will come from reducing the dependence on the hydrocarbon uh, globally. Uh, so we can reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. What does that mean uh, for oil producing countries, the GCC or other countries in the region as well? It could translate into a future where the demand of the oil and gas could decline. Because with the entry of the Paris Agreement into force, uh, countries started to adopt uh, climate strategies and climate uh, neutra neutrality targets that aims to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And what I am showing in the table, I'm showing the trade partners with the GCC. Those trade partners, they, uh, they are 
major consumers of uh, oil that comes from the GCC. As you can look at the figures on the left, for example, uh, Japan, uh, it depends uh, or it imports 88% 80, uh, of uh, its oil from the region. Um, South Korea, it imports around 50. And so, but all of those countries have set uh, targets. Uh, for example, they set net zero target to be achieved by or around uh, mid-century. And well, perhaps at the moment, we don't see that materialize maybe in reality. However, uh, we have seen what could uh, advanced climate policies could do to the, to the oil demand and the oil prices uh, through the implications of the COVID-19 pandemic and also through the implications of the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Um, shall we wait uh, and see what the advanced climate policy will, will do or should, be, should we taking uh, precautions from now? Here um, uh, uh, with this map, uh, I want to make a little bit of transition uh, from what I have been speaking about. So I spoke about the physical and the economic impacts of the climate change. But here I want to bring to your attention that climate change also um, has a security implication. And it could, uh, if it's not addressed properly, it could uh, shape the security of the Middle East in the uh, next few years. What I'm showing here in this map is the shared water resources, um, the surface, shared surface water uh, uh, resources in the, in, the, in, the, in the Middle East. And studies suggest that 66% of fresh uh, water resources in the Arab region originate from outside the national border. Um, and 14 out of 22 Arab states uh, sharing uh, a surface water body. Uh, examples, uh, I can give you the example of Tigris and Euphrates, the Nile, uh, the Jordan River Basin, uh, Senegal River Basin. So these are shared between countries. Um, there are already signs out there that the, the, the issue of the water scarcity has started to manifest in creating competition between countries over the shared water resources. And that happens uh, mainly, for example, through the building of dams. And that creates uh, fears uh, between countries uh, uh, on the uh, shortages of, of the downstream uh, flow. And this is, there are already signs, uh, there, there is the example of the uh, tension between uh, Ethiopian, Sudanese, um, and the Egyptian, um, which is uh, coming, um, uh, stemming from the building of the Ethiopian uh, resonance uh, dam. Um, and then also, because uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates, they are originating from uh, Turkey and Iran, uh, so Turkey and Iran are controlling the water flow to Syria and Iraq. And there are already uh, negotiations out there because 
both Iran and Turkey are also building dams, and that is, you know, uh, reducing the downstream flow of water uh, to the countries like Iraq and Syria. Um, this is also to show that uh, the water resources is not, the shared water resources are not only the surface, but also in terms of the aquifers. Uh, they are also uh, a large uh, number of aquifers are shared, and this also, you know, because there is a rise in the depletion of those aqu aquifers, and because that is also uh, impacted because of the impacts of the climate change, we could expect more and more tension if we don't address those issues in the right way. Uh, again, uh, also, um, it is good to. Um, bring uh, life examples uh, of what is happening. There are already um, examples that climate change is, has started to create internal uh, and regional tensions. Uh, in the middle, I mentioned the, uh, the tension over the Nile uh, River between Ethiopian, Sudanese, and um, uh, Egyptians, um, and also, uh, for example, in Iran, last year, uh, in July, uh, there have been protests out there in Khuzakhstan, and that has been not only the first time, but it has happened in a frequent manner because of the shortages um, uh, in, in water. Actually, what the people felt, uh, not the shortages of water, but they have been uh, exposed to uh, electricity blackout. And actually, that electricity is produced through the hydro power. So there have been protests. And then, uh, of course, um, there one have been killed, as reported in this BBC article. I mentioned also that the Gulf region, uh, Oman, has been uh, experiencing a frequency of extreme weather events. Um, also, this BBC article reports uh, 13 uh, people have been killed uh, last year. Um, I think the number represents both Oman and Iran. Uh, but also, uh, we need to think also about the, um, the damage to the infrastructure and the, the compensation that needs uh, to be taken into consideration. Uh, here, I just... Uh, what, this is just uh, a summary of the all points that I mentioned before in terms of the physical impact, the impact on the uh, water, agriculture, food security, uh, the, the also the energy access as well, uh, the uh, internal conflicts and the transboundary conflicts that could be created by the climate change. Now, let's move uh, to the, um, the third uh, element of today's uh, talk. Um, it's about, okay, these are the issues that the region is facing, uh, how much uh, the issues uh, manage to tackle those climate uh, challenges. So I, before I delve in, I also want uh, for us to differentiate uh, when the countries 
uh, address climate change, uh, they, they do it in two ways. So the COP that we are speaking about, it is uh, a global uh, conference where the countries go and negotiate and they also communicate their, uh, how they are going to tackle climate change, both in terms of mitigation and adaptation. And for that, they also submit the nationally determined contributions. It's a report that is submitted to the UNFCCC. Um, however, we need to also understand that is not enough. That is, those reports that are submitted to the UNFCCC is just a report. It doesn't necessarily mean that the domest domestically that the, the country is doing something about it. And this is something we need to look at. So here I just, uh, I just wanted to show that the countries in the Middle East, in fact, have been active uh, in terms of uh, international government of climate change, uh, because all of them, uh, except, for, uh, except for Libya, Iran, and Yemen, all of them have ratified the Paris Agreement and all of them have been communicated to the UNFCCC and submitting reports, such as the National Communication Report, Binennial uh, Update Reports, uh, and the Nationally Determined Contributions. What is important is to look at what the countries have been doing uh, domestically uh, in terms of um, sitting the targets in terms of putting, putting forward strategies uh, and policies and a, a governance structure to address climate change. So here, um, uh, I wasn't able to put all countries in one table, in one slide, so I'm just selecting a few countries. Uh, uh, optimistically, um, the, the countries have been doing progress in terms of setting targets as well as uh, putting forward strategies to address climate change. Uh, and that is, uh, as we look, I see, as we see here, uh, there are renewable energy targets uh, in, for example, in the Gulf Arab states and in Egypt. They also have uh, some of the countries in the region have set net zero target uh, by or around uh, mid-century. Um, not all of them have a climate uh, strategy in place at the moment, uh, but uh, most of them do have uh, initiatives that are related to addressing uh, the climate change both in terms of mitigation as well as uh, adaptation. Uh, also here, uh, I want uh, for us also uh, to look if the countries, because there are regional issues, uh, when it's, uh, regional climate related issues, um, and so the, the countries in the region also are well aware of those challenges and uh, there has been some uh, regional governance structure out there uh, to look at issues, for example, the shared uh, water resources. Um, and uh, a most recent example is the um, Middle East Initiative. Uh, Middle East Initiative uh, that have been established uh, last year in 2021. 
by Saudi Arabia, and uh, it has different targets, um, including uh, you know uh, scaling up the investments and in the carbon capture and storage, um, cloud seeding uh, programs uh, that is also for water, um, and also. Uh, establishing regional center for sustainable development and fisheries. Uh, we, uh, how effective those governance structures and how operational uh, are they? Uh, that is a real question. Uh, so we have seen, we are looking here at establishments since 1979. Uh, to answer this question, uh, the study that I'm uh, putting a picture of uh, on the top We've tried to look at how effective those structures are. Um, and if I can highlight on one of the findings, um, we found that those uh, governance structure, uh, there are some regulations out there, for example, for water and uh, general environmental regula regulations. However, they remain unupdated. And in terms of the implementation, uh, there are a lot of gaps there. Um, especially, we see an initiatives and then we don't see a follow-up for that initiatives. We also found that there is a, a transparency gap as well. But you can look at the paper if you are interested to know more. Uh, also, um, yes, I mentioned that shared water resources or the water scarcity in the region uh, is a, a big issue. And there are some uh, inter-ministerial committees. One example, the one at the uh, level of the Arab League and then the other one is on the level of the Gulf Cooperation Council. And the international organizations like the ESQA uh, actually has been more active uh, in this area uh, in terms of bringing uh, uh, regional countries uh, to come together, negotiate, have dialogue, and discuss solutions uh, on how to address the water scarcity issues. Uh, again, this, uh, the, the, the paper uh, on the right is also a good overview for those um, institutions. Uh, here, I'm, uh, since, we, since we are uh, saying that COP27 is the COP of the implementation, it's really important to look at uh, what countries have done on the ground. So, uh, for example, uh, I just mentioned that there are some uh, renewable energy targets out there. And if we look at this figure, uh, globally, the um, the in renewable energy installed capacity has indeed increased over the years. And for the Middle East region, it has increased uh, by 38% uh, between uh, 2011 and 2021. Uh, however, um, if we look at the primary energy consumption uh, for each country in the region, we can see uh, I don't know if you see the green. So if you see the green, that is the renewable energy. Um, but I don't think it is very clear here because uh, the primary energy consumption uh, is still dominated by the oil, 
and, ga and gas despite that progress uh, in, um, uh, in developing the renewable energy. So I think there is still a big gap to be filled there. And also, um, there aren't too many studies that evaluate uh, how much the countries have progressed in terms of their climate action. Uh, but this report, I had the pleasure to participate in putting together with the Mohammed bin Rashid School. Uh, so this one is looking at how the Arab countries have uh, been progressing in achieving the sustainable development goals. Uh, and in this slide, I'm trying to just focus on sustainable development goal number seven and 13. Number 13 is on the climate action. Uh, the, uh, the, the bad news is no one Arab region has yet uh, achieved uh, sustainable development goal number 13 on the climate action. Uh, however, and, and that's, uh, if you look at the colors, it's either in red, yellow, or um, orange. But it is only the blue in that indicates that the, uh, the SDG has been achieved. However, the, 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 arrows, the arrows show that the countries are doing progress uh, when it comes to the climate action. Great. Um, in here, um, I just wanted uh, for us uh, to see on how the people in the region think about the climate change, how the people think that uh, how serious is climate change. Um, if we look at the figure on the left, that is a global picture. So since 2017, um, you know, um, so the environmental issues are in, 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 in green. So there has been progress. These have been coming uh, you know, to the top. Um, for example, uh, the water crisis, the extreme weather events um, are coming to the picture uh, as we move on. But if we look at the middle, uh, the MENA region, and these are figures from 2019. It is not a most recent one. Uh, if we look at how the people think about the top risks that they are concerned about, you can see first one, energy price shock, unemployment, terrorist attack. Um, and it is until number eight that we see a, a climate-related issue, which is the water crisis. Um, so there are more pressing concerns for the region that comes ahead of the climate change. Um, there is um, a recently the Arab barometer also have published some statistics on how the people think about climate change. So that provides more of a recent data on how the people think about it. Um, now, um, now the, the, uh, we go back to the main question, what to expect from COP27 and beyond. And here I want for us uh, not to think about it only uh, from a negotiation point of view, but also the consequences of it on the ground. So to 
just uh, summarize on what we expect. Uh, actually, um, as I mentioned, uh, there, are, there are issues um, with the rise in the temperature. There's the issue with the uh, water, uh, food security. So, uh, and then the, also the extreme weather events. So it is not surprising that uh, the, the focus of the negotiation uh, uh, in the upcoming COP will be on uh, climate finance, climate adaptation, and loss and damage. In terms of the climate finance, uh, the Arab countries, uh, so there is the pledge, a global pledge, uh, that the developed countries should provide the developing countries with finance, which should equal to 100 billion in a yearly basis, but we are far away from achieving that goal. But if we look at the Arab region, how much the Arab region has achieved so far, it's only 6% of the international public finance flow. And there are studies that suggest that uh, climate finance in the region, uh, for the Arab region, should actually be um, uh, between uh, 436 billions to 478 billions uh, by 2030. However, the region has only received uh, one to uh, 7.4 billion uh, a year so far. So this would be uh, for, for, the, for, the, for Egypt and for Africa, this would be one of the pressing issues that uh, needs to be addressed out there. Um, adaptation. Uh, also, um, uh, for, for the Arab region, uh, when it comes to the adaptation, there's the need for uh, human capacity building uh, and the transfer of the know-how and the technology along with the finance. Loss and damage, um, to what extent this, uh, uh, this uh, issue is uh, discussed within, within the region, well, it's going for sure to come uh, in the negotiations, but I don't see it coming uh, at the top of the discussion so far, uh, especially in terms of the negotiations and the preparations for the COP. Um, and also going beyond uh, COP27, uh, in COP28, and I think those issues, um, when the UAE is hosting COP28, I think the UAE, the focus would be more on the other, uh, on the climate mitigation, mitigation aspect uh, rather than the adaptation, because there are some studies that shows that the Gulf states have more caution to adapt to the climate change compared to the others. But it, it is not also meant to say that the adaptation will not come at front in the negotiations. But as I mentioned, uh, uh, we're in the hydrocarbon resources of an importance to the economy of the Gulf Arab states. One major issue to be discussed there is the impact of the response measures. And this, is, uh, this, this phrase is what exactly mean. It, it means that there are countries uh, the, where economy will be negatively impacted as the global community advance climate policy. And 
for example, small uh, island countries could be, you know, impacted by the sea level rise. And for those countries, uh, the, the impact of response measure, so these countries would require compensation for that impact. For hydrocarbon countries, um, actually, um, there has been a request for the compensation that uh, comes out of the reduction on the revenues uh, for the oil and gas export. Uh, but there hasn't been any progress out there, but I think this issue would be discussed farther um, when the UAE hosts the COP. Another uh, issue uh, is the carbon markets. Uh, the carbon markets, uh, um, to simplify it, it is a mechanism where the countries put a price on the carbon and a mechanism where the countries uh, trade uh, the, the carbon credits so they can reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. Now this is also um, could be a concern for the hydrocarbon producing countries. Uh, however, um, we have seen some, as this is coming to a front in the negotiations, we have seen some implications on it on the ground. Uh, some countries have started to put uh, a price on the carbon but for the Gulf Arab states, there is a, a voluntary carbon market initiative. We have seen one uh, established by the public uh, investment fund uh, in Saudi Arabia, and then, and then uh, also another one uh, in the UAE. One last point is the um, global stock take. The first global stock take, which is a mechanism to measure the progress of the countries and achieving their climate commitments. Uh, it will take, the first one of, uh, of it will take place in 2023 in the UAE. So that would actually put a pressure of the countries in the region and globally to showcase how they are progressing and achieving their climate targets. Last slide for today, um, the why should uh, the dynamics uh, of climate in the MENA matter for Singapore? Uh, so for Singapore, Singapore is uh, one main concern for Singapore is the energy security. So Singapore is trying to diversify its energy uh, or fuel imports as much as possible. Um, and it is, uh, it is importing uh, around 36% of its fuel is coming from the MENA region. At the same time, Singapore has the ambitions uh, to also transition from, from depending on the uh, carbon intensive fuels like to cleaner fuel sources. Uh, uh, Singapore has started with the natural gas and they have the ambitions also to expand on using the renewable energy, the hydrogen. And Singapore has established uh, uh, the green plan, uh, 20, the 2030 green plan, where they aim basically to reduce the green, their, their uh, greenhouse gas emission footprint. Um, and also for, so, so as the UAE is hosting the COP in 2023 20, uh, next year, um, is it going to be a, a, 
and Asia Cobb. So is, it, is that going to translate in more of cooperation between the two regions as the two regions also has, both has aspirations to develop cleaner energy sources. And also it's important to highlight that uh, both regions in fact are facing common climate challenges, including the water security, uh, the sea level rise, and the exposure to extreme weather events. And does that mean that the countries would come together uh, to work uh, closely uh, on addressing those uh, challenges? Um, and I'm also, also including some pictures from Egypt and from Saudi, where we show the two sides, Singapore and the Arab um, stakeholders are actually already uh, speaking about uh, those issues. Sorry to take very long time, but uh, I close my presentation here. And thank you very much for your listening. Thank you very much, Aisha, for an extremely informative and comprehensive presentation. You underline the problem about water. I do believe you deserve a sip of water after more than one hour of talk now. Uh, it's quite interesting, uh, as you were mentioning um, uh, in one of your slides, uh, the matter of perception. Uh, you presented us uh, with uh, very important scientific data, but perception also play an important role. And in the top 10 risk, you managed to put only at the eighth place water, and it was the only one climate related. It's quite interesting because I just landed in Singapore a couple of hours ago from Dubai. I was in Dubai during the last week. Uh, and the perception that you can have uh, at street level is that uh, tomorrow is going to be better than today. Economics is booming, real estate is booming, and all the talk that I had in these days in Dubai was about uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency. Nobody mentioned water. But in your presentation, uh, you highlight three points, very, very important in my opinion. One, warming up is two times faster in the Middle East than in the other area. Two, we are not talking about water scarcity. We are talking about absolute water scarcity. And then a, looming, a very gloomy 3% GDP de decline in the coming years. And you mentioned two case scenario, the worst case scenario, but also I was looking at, the, let's say, the good one. It doesn't look good at all. So having said that, uh, are we in denial or we are overconfident uh, on the COP27 implementation? And this is something that I do believe need to be discussed. But now talking about flood, we have a flood of questions from our audience online. So uh, if the audience here apologize me, the one present here in the room, I start with online and then we can give the floor to the question here. And the question mainly that I, I receive now are about water. One is from uh, Baoxuan uh, Elizabeth. One of the contributing factors to water scarcity is increasing salinity, which is made worse by more dam construction. How significant do you think this will affect food security, especially looking at agriculture? And there is a follow-up uh, saying, how significant do you think that uh, food security, especially also not only agriculture, but in fishery, is going to be affected? I think we can start with this one. Well, thank you very much, uh, Alex, for very important questions uh, indeed. And uh, so if I go back to the first question in terms of the perception, 
Um, so also I want to say that there isn't enough surveys out there that measure the people perception about the climate change. Um, there are a few out there. I mentioned the Arab barometer. And uh, for that reason also, I have been uh, most recently involved in a, a regional study. We uh, have been, uh, we have conducted a survey, a perception survey to measure the people awareness and uh, understanding of the impact of the climate change around the Red Sea region. And we covered almost uh, fifth, uh, 11 countries uh, around the Red Sea. Uh, we are now uh, still working on the results. Uh, but uh, if I can uh, go back to your question, uh, the water scarcity is there. The region is warming. Um, and, and the GDP is expected to decline. But the people don't talk about it on a daily basis. Well, that's true. Because if we look at the water scarcity issue, uh, as I mentioned also uh, in one slide, 90% uh, of the people actually, they do have access to water at the moment. Mm -hmm. So they are not uh, really uh, aware that there is an issue because they have access to the water. Um, so they are not aware that the desalination perhaps is playing a role. So I think the awareness factor is uh, really uh, playing uh, a role uh, in there. Um, and, also, um, and, and also like to understand the people awareness, the integration of the climate uh, studies and the science in the education curricula. It's not been integrated there uh, for a long time. So also, if you go and speak to a student uh, from the region, uh, like, what do you know about the climate change? They might don't understand the phrase of the climate change. So I think it is uh, really a matter of awareness. The, the problem is there, but also the people don't uh, talk about it or not consider it as a, a serious or priority. Uh, issue. Uh, but uh, that said, I think at the level of um, the, the policymakers, I think the awareness is there. Uh, there are, and especially uh, as uh, Egypt is hosting COP27 and the UAE is next year hosting COP28, there are a lot of meetings going on uh, in the region out there, either to prepare for the COP. Uh, or also there, the international organizations get involved also uh, on discussing the issues, especially the ESQA is really playing a major role. ESQA is, uh, the, the models that I've shown is from a study that has been conducted by the ESQA because most of the studies that uh, uh, speak about the climate change, uh, they look at it from a global perspective and the, the, the RICAR report that I've uh, presented is actually prepared for the Middle East and specifically on the Middle East by ESQA. So I think awareness, uh, I think also the education, and then uh, I think also the amount of studies uh, and the connection between science and the policy. These are the main factors why we don't speak about it as serious as it is. Um, the second point is a, a really good point, uh, and I, yes, and I didn't talk about the issue of the salinity. 
that is indeed an issue. So it is not only the, there's the depletion of the water resources and then the rise in the temperature and the evaporation of it. But with that also, uh, and this is really happening, I, I, um, being from the region, I have seen how um, agricultural areas have been affected by that. So what happens? So if we have an aquifer here and then we have the sea here, um, as we deplete the water from the aquifer, uh, actually that gives an opportunity for the uh, seawater to come and uh, the, it is called um, the seawater intrusion um, and that uh, actually leads to salinating the, the water. So the, the governments in the region, in a way, they try to find solution for it. One of it is to do desalination for the seawater, and one of it is also to desalinate the, the groundwater as well. And uh, actually, like if, if we have the sea and the aquifer here, and here we have agricultural land, uh, I have seen it with my eye. It, it's actually from the village that I came from. Uh, so the agricultural land transfer into something like a, a burned agricultural land. So yes, uh, for the countries that depends on the agriculture as a source of economy, this is a serious issue. And also for the Middle East countries, almost 80% of the uh, food is imported, uh, imported from outside. So this is also a serious uh, issue that needs to be uh, tackled. Thank you very much. Talking about food shortage helped me to rope in uh, the other question. There are a set of questions and for a matter of time I will compact them together and basically it's talking about uh, the elephant in the room, Russia invasion of Ukraine. Uh, in several areas of the Middle East, most of the MENA region, it created a shortage of food staple, uh, just you mentioned it now. In other areas, created an unexpected wealth, especially in the GCC in terms of oil. But if we look uh, uh, in a broader dynamic, looking already that we are in a post-COVID uh, recovery mode, then there is this additional problem uh, created by the negative spillover of the war in Ukraine. How these two very complex uh, dynamics are affecting climate policy and energy transition in the region? This is a, a very uh, complicated and a really good question as well. Um, so the Russia-Ukraine uh, crisis, it came almost right after the, the countries are trying to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so for the countries in the Middle East, as I mentioned in the presentation, we do have the wealthiest and we have the poorest. So in a simple terms, the implications of the Russia-Ukraine crisis uh, to, uh, to the Middle East countries, it made the rich richer and the poor poorest. Uh, so if we look, for example, at um, Jordan, countries like Jordan, uh, Yemen, um, the, the inflation has increased uh, in there. And so the food prices has increased. Uh, the uh, electricity bill has increased. Uh, also the, the price of, of the fuel. And that um, also, in fact, um, the crisis has, um, in fact, sent mixed signals uh, 
uh, to the Middle East uh, when it comes to the uh, clean energy transition. In a way, although it has been difficult for countries like Jordan, um, say Yemen, for example, um, to, uh, to you know, uh, feel the implications of the crisis, but in a way, it has forced those countries uh, or the households to find you know, something more stable, something more cheaper, uh, which is uh, the installation of the solar panels in their rooftop. However, also there is the challenge of the disruption of the supply chain uh, because of the, the, the war and also because of the, the consequences of the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic. So they are in, in a difficult position. Uh, uh, either pay the high price of the energy or find the alternative, which is renewables. It is uh, cheaper uh, given the current situation. However, as I mentioned, the supply chain is an issue. Um, on the other hand, um, for um, hydrocarbon-rich countries, uh, say the Gulf countries, uh, 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 the other countries in North Africa, like uh, Algeria, uh, Libya, the crisis in a way has created um, an opportunity for those countries to both tap on their hydrocarbon reserves, uh, uh, reserves uh, we have seen uh, different visits from uh, Western leaders, including the Biden, uh, President Biden visit to uh, Saudi Arabia and other countries in the region. Uh, this week, uh, there was a visit uh, from the German, um, um, the, from, yes, um, to the region, uh, where he also uh, signed a, a natural gas agreement with the UAE. Uh, what I'm, I'm trying to say, uh, uh, it's um, the, the crisis, although the European countries, they are in, yes, they are in a difficult position uh, to find alternative supplies of the energy and meet the immediate needs of the energy. Um, and also they are in a position also to meet their climate targets. There's the European Green Deal and uh, each country also because of the crisis have put uh, or advanced their renewable energy targets. So they are in a position to face the current crisis as well as uh, meet their long uh, term climate targets. And that in a way is uh, uh, sending a mixed signal to other countries like the, the hydrocarbon rich countries like uh, in the Gulf. Uh, so, through those visits, uh, the, the priority is uh, to sign agreements in the oil or on, on natural gas supply. Uh, however, um, I am optimistic because uh, also the discussion of you know uh, advancing cooperation on clean and energy fuels like uh, hydrogen has been actually mentioned. And if we look at the meetings that happens. Uh, actually, uh, the, the European delegation, uh, when they visited uh, Egypt uh, to sign a natural gas uh, agreement, uh, it has been done uh, between uh, the representative uh, of the uh, European Commission, uh, who is uh, responsible for the European Green Deal, and also uh, the, uh, from the Egypt side is the president of the COP27. So that is, in a way, uh, gives hope that uh, clean energy transition is not left aside 
at least not, maybe not in the short term, because uh, developing these resources is going to take time, but uh, at least for the mid and long term. I'm extremely glad that they're optimistic because you are the expert on the matter. I'm very pessimistic on this uh, in terms of climate action and the Green Deal, especially from an European point of view, now that there is, again, perception that there's going to be a cold winter. Winter is coming. Uh, war is still going to be there for uh, at least some time ahead. And then uh, this uh, preoccupation of the climate deal uh, is no more something that matters uh, on, on the present in Europe, or at least it seems from my perspective, but luckily you are optimistic on that. And with the next question, I'm trying to fuse security and water uh, as we are discussing now. And the question uh, from Zoom is, uh, no need to say uh, that water, I mean, has been written a lot about water, uh, and that's it's already there and it's not just in the Middle East uh, but even in Asia there uh, are potential flashpoints between state the statistic given seem to indicate that uh, it is an increasing rare resource how do you see country working toward managing this issue are there effort to think about how technology could help them manage such a valuable resource uh, there is an example, for example, come to my mind that now the UAE is using cloud seeding, but still uh, uh, is a technology that is quite untested. China is, uh, is bent on the same page. So what's your uh, uh, comment on this question? Okay, so, um, right. Um, so the water scarcity is, has been an issue that uh, the policy makers have been aware of and in terms of finding the solutions of it uh, so far uh, those solutions has been translated in developing uh, more of uh, supply sources of it uh, as for example the, the desalination technology however uh, the, the the issue in the region is about also managing the demand side of water uh, although there is an issue of water scarcity, the, the, the per capita consumption of the water is one of the highest uh, in the region, is one of the highest in the world. So there is, the, there is a challenge also to look how to manage the, the demand side of it, how to change the behavior of the people. And here also comes the point about the perception People don't think like we do have a water issue, and that is really uh, it, that is really critical in terms of changing the behavior of the people to you know reduce their water uh, consumption. Um, that said, um, also uh, another point that I want to bring is that uh, the water desalination technology is mostly imported uh, in the region. Uh, there is no uh, the development of national capacity uh, so far, as far as you know. However, this, uh, this issue has been discussed uh, on and on within the region since uh, the, the 70s. Um, and we most recently have started to see some uh, progress not in uh, practical terms, but in at least uh, in terms of having the dialogue. For example, there was uh, a conference uh, hosted in the last few weeks 
uh, in Saudi Arabia, and it discussed uh, the desalination technology. And one of the elements that have been discussed is how to localize this technology. Um, and different um, experts have been brought there uh, to exchange the knowledge and the know-how, and also to bring uh, countries to come and work together. Uh, also, in terms of um, the cooperation between countries, um, yes, there are some institutional uh, governance ar architecture, uh, both at the regional level, uh, uh, at the level of the MENA region, there is a, a ministerial committee that looks at the water issues uh, in the MENA region uh, under the Arab League. Uh, and then there is also another ministerial committee uh, at the Gulf Cooperation Council, and that one has uh, issued uh, a strategy for water resource management across the GCC countries. Um, as to standardize uh, how the water will be managed across uh, the, the countries. Um, but again, uh, there is a question, okay, we do have a strategy, but do we implement that strategy? And does it work? Uh, that, uh, we still don't have an answer for it, but there are some studies have been published about this strategy. Um, and also, uh, water scarcity is a global issue as well. Um, from my knowledge, uh, there's also the U.S. is leading uh, a global dialogue uh, on uh, to, to enable uh, the uh, transfer of the, of the know-how uh, between countries. Um, uh, and also they are in preparation to uh, bring those uh, dialogues also to the COP27. Uh, one entity from the Middle East that have been in, involved in those negotiation uh, dialogues is the Medtrick. Uh, it is uh, a, a water management and desalination research center based in Masqat uh, in Oman. Uh, and this one has been established between Oman uh, and, all, and uh, Israel, actually. And one uh, idea behind it is, uh, you know, to uh, enable the capacity building around water management. Uh, there are delivering some uh, master uh, programs, uh, so they bring the students to come and study um, uh, about the water issues. They provide scholarships for also students from the region uh, to go and focus on the management of the water resources. Um, so there are some initiatives out there, but I think the gap between having an initiative and implementing them and having implications on the ground, I think that gap is still a huge gap. Now, there's a very interesting news about Oman because um, uh, at the time of Sultan Qaboos, Oman was uh, a leading regional actor in geopolitical international relations diplomacy and now having Oman, uh, let's call it as a water diplomacy actor, is going to be very important for the region because it's an actor that know how to do it. Uh, one um, suggestion for our audience here in person, you are not on mute. So feel free to raise your hand and we will deliver a microphone to you. For the moment, just allow me to read another question from Zoom from Nawaz Muhammad. Did I hear that the Middle East countries don't have a long-term low emission development strategy? 
for example, Singapore have one. If so, do you think there will, such an, there will be such an initiative or a motivation in the near future? Okay, thanks very much, uh, Dr. Mohammed, uh, for the uh, question and for attending the presentation. Uh, well, well um, there are some targets out there. There are renewable energy targets uh, for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, um, renewable energy targets to scale up the development of renewables. And also some countries in their nationally determined contribution have set uh, carbon emission reduction target. For example, Saudi Arabia have done so. Oman uh, have put a, a target to reduce the emissions by 7%. Um, in terms of, of the strategies, um, the UAE does have a climate, uh, a national climate strategy, which focus both on uh, the adaptation and the mitigation. Um, and also, uh, in terms of the low emissions, also we didn't expect that uh, countries in the regions will, um, you know, commit to net zero targets. So far, three countries have announced commitments uh, to net zero targets, including Bahrain, UAE, and Saudi Arabia. And Oman, actually, uh, there are some talks that Oman also uh, will uh, announce a net zero target soon. So there are some targets out there. There are strategies. Um, again, uh, my concern also is the gap between having a strategy and having a target, but also doing uh, uh, or implementing the right policies and the regulations that helps to achieve those targets. And before also you mentioned um, uh, in the perception the role uh, of subsidies. If you don't pay the real cost of water, you don't have a perception that water is a scarce resource. Mm -hmm. Something that uh, no matter what we are going to see sooner or later in the GCC, is that this subsidy, not only on water, but on fuel or electricity, are going to be less and less, or shrink down even on food. Mm -hmm. So in your opinion, uh, this climate change ongoing and creating bigger problem compounded with subsidy is going uh, to create uh, fra fragmentation in the relationship between state and society. Okay, um, uh, thanks for an excellent question, uh, which is not discussed much actually. Um, so yes, so the countries in the region are classified as, as I mentioned, uh, the per capita consumption of water is one of the highest, and also the energy consumption on per capita basis is one of the highest. Also, uh, with that comes also uh, the carbon emissions on per capita basis is also one of the highest, and indeed uh, the subsidies uh, of the provisions of the water and the electricity have been a main reason behind that. And speaking about behavior, and as I mentioned, there is an issue of the demand side management. Uh, indeed, the subsidies have been playing a role there. Uh, and actually, if we don't, and even for renewables, if we don't, if the people find renewable is more expensive than the conventional resources, there will be no incentive to go and invest in renewables. 
uh, as far as we have access to cheaper hydrocarbon uh, resources. Um, however, um, I think what would help on addressing those issues is not perhaps in the short term the environment and the climate concerns, and here come the, the perception that we have today, uh, it will be the economic challenges. And in fact, uh, the, the COVID-19 crisis has actually uh, put those, uh, the subsidies at front. Um, so because there was a pressure on the state budgets because of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, that put the governments uh, to look at the subsidies and they looked at how they can, um, the reform of the subsidies uh, could uh, actually reduce the pressure on the budget. And in fact, it happened. It happened uh, in, in, there was energy price reforms in Saudi Arabia, uh, in, in Oman and in, in the UAE. It happened actually also earlier than uh, COVID-19. It happened, for example, uh, because of the drop in the oil uh, prices uh, in 2014. That put uh, pressure over the governments uh, to, to um, consider uh, economic reforms uh, within the country. Um, but uh, from a climate perspective, um, again, we, the, as the countries are setting carbon reduction targets, there will be more and more uh, of need to reform the subsidies and reduce uh, uh, the, um, the incentives in the energy sector so they can reduce um, the consumption of the energy and as well as reduce greenhouse gas uh, emissions. However, that's challenging uh, from a, um, a political point of view uh, where the state-society relations in a way have been for a long time built uh, around those subsidies. And uh, with the, the countries are setting carbon uh, net zero targets, uh, that also could translate uh, for those countries to consider putting a price on the carbon so they can, uh, in that way, they can, you know, uh, put a pressure over uh, the people uh, to reduce uh, their consumption of, for example, electricity or the water. Um, however, that would be um, uh, challenging uh, moving forward. Uh, but as I mentioned, um, the 2014 drop in the oil prices as well as COVID-19, the impacts of COVID-19 have been a reminder that maybe environmental or climate issue, but it is a, a real economic concern, even for, for the wealthiest countries uh, uh, in the region. Thank you again. I think we have a question from the floor, please. Thank you so much, Alex. Uh, the climate change and the activities surrounding it is really fascinating to study. I see at the three level, and the world is uh, trying to mitigate it. Uh, at the diplomatic level, the COP series that Aisha has just elaborately mentioned. At the scientific level, 
the energy transition is happening, all of the country and the scientific people are working. There's a third aspect, and that is the financial sector, where carbon trading is happening. And that brings us to the role of uh, Singapore as the world's leading uh, financial and uh, trading hub, and its ambition to become a world's leading carbon services and trading hub. So I would like to ask uh, Aisha this question, how do you see the potential of Singapore becoming a world's leading uh, carbon services and trading hub? Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Asif, for a very uh, excellent question. So I have been uh, following the progress of Singapore uh, on their uh, ambitions to be uh, a climate uh, action leader um, at the global level. And they are really progressing really fast uh, in terms of the carbon trading. Um, here at the level of the NUS, they, the, the NUS has uh, programs for stakeholders uh, to get and involved. It is uh, designed by the uh, NUS Business School to help them uh, go and understand what the carbon trade market is and how does it work and how to be involved in it. And Singapore also have been a leader in being um, for, for also um, for making an announcement uh, to make it part of uh, it is a, a sovereign wealth fund. Um, I think, uh, however, there is um, when it comes to carbon trading, it is a relatively new concept, uh, and there needs uh, to be more of uh, um, developing and of an understanding of it, and then with it also. There is a need also uh, to enhance the cooperation between countries to get involved. And one of the challenges with the carbon trading is uh, to put uh, a price on carbon and to standardize that, uh, uh, that price. Today, uh, different regions have different price on the carbon so, um, for example, Europe has a different price on, on carbon. Uh, countries here in Asia and this part, they have different price on carbon. And that makes it difficult uh, for uh, the countries to trade in, or the regions to trade in uh, between each other. Um, that said, um, also that would have um, probably implications for the Middle East countries uh, because, uh, as I mentioned, Middle East countries have announced a voluntary carbon markets so far. Uh, they are not operational at the moment. Uh, the Saudi uh, one is promised to, to start operationalizing in 2023. Uh, but, uh, you know, with farther and farther cooperation between countries, uh, we could see more of a progress uh, in that area. Thank you very much. And you talk about cooperation uh, between countries. Uh, and um, I can see we still have uh, several questions, but time is running out. So I will just allow one more question from our Zoom audience. Uh, uh, and this question basically asks you to gaze at the crystal ball and look at the future. COP27, COP28. 
will the regional host of a common COP enhance cooperation or competition between regional countries? A very excellent and a very difficult question as, at the same time. Um, uh, I like to be optimistic. Uh, why? Because um, the, the dis as I mentioned, the, the negotiations around the climate change is not that old. Yes, the UNFCCC have been established 30 years ago. Uh, however, all of the time that has been spent in the negotiation is for the countries to understand how they are impacted by the climate change, uh, how they can address the climate change. Uh, and now um, the, the, we've spent almost 30 years just to discuss that. The implementation aspect is happening only now. So I, I, I do like to be optimistic whenever we see a small progress uh, happening out there. Um, whether there will be cooperation or competition, so far, and especially that Egypt is hosting COP27 and the UAE is hosting COP28, uh, so far at least uh, at the, the, the level of preparing for the COPs, we have seen more of uh, the countries coming together. Uh, the, for example, Egypt and the UAE come together and discuss how they, what issues they want to, do, to bring at the COP, uh, how do they want to prepare for the COP. Uh, there are some uh, also events that are taking place within the region in preparation for the COP. Uh, an example is the, um, the Middle East um, Climate Week that uh, took place in Dubai uh, this year, where it brought uh, together uh, uh, the stakeholders from within the region, the Middle East, and also from uh, other parts of the world, they came in Dubai and then they sit, sat together and discussed different aspects of the climate issue in terms of the mitigation, adaptation, the finance, and all of that. Um, however, also, uh, to be realistic also, we need uh, to look at it uh, does it, have, does it uh, happen from practical point of view uh, to solve the issue uh, from practical way? Um, there are some signs that shows that cooperation is happening. Um, and for that, I can bring the example of the cooperation between, uh, um, between Jordan, Israel, and the UAE. Uh, most recently, they signed an agreement uh, where they can ex exchange uh, water uh, for electricity production from renewable energy resources. So the, um, I think it's Jordan who produced the renewable energy and in exchange for that, they get water from Israel. And the UAE has been involved in that agreement. Um, and uh, there's also the, uh, the agreements uh, between Saudi Arabia uh, and Iraq where um, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iraq and, and Egypt where they want to develop a national uh, grid uh, so they can exchange electricity um, uh, as well. The, there's the attempt to include the renewables uh, with that exchange. Uh, however, from a historical point of view, 
uh, when we look at the, the developments that comes to the climate change, from a historical, we have seen a kind of a competition between countries. At least, um, we, we see that one country would set, for example, a renewable energy target or a net zero target. And then the next day, without uh, any obvious cooperation with the, the neighbor, we see the neighbor is also announcing that. And uh, from a present example, uh, there is a, a growing momentum also to develop uh, the hydrogen uh, in the region. So, um, so far, and I have written about, uh, about this most recently, uh, the, the countries are working, at least in the Gulf Arab states, they are working on developing national uh, strategies and regulations to enable the hydrogen development, but we didn't see signs of cooperations between those countries. Each country is working on its own. So there could be, with that, we could see a future where countries you know, compete with each other because they want also to have, uh, each country would want to have a large share in the market when it comes to the hydrogen. So, however, uh, the host of the COP27 and 28, and probably to conclude with the, an optimistic, um, you know, point, uh, I think that would hopefully uh, bring the countries closer together and cooperate more and more in the area. Aisha, thank you very much again uh, for this very informative session, uh, and I have to thank you twice for the optimistic tone. That is something that we really need. Please allow me to ask to our audience for a round of applause, and thank you again for today's event. Thank you very much. <laughs>